Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's August 25th, 2021. It's morning on the West Coast of the United States in San Francisco. I hope you're all well. Uh, the headlines this morning are full of rather sad news about the great drummer for the Rolling Stones, Charlie Watts, who died yesterday. Uh, the New York Times described him as the unlikely soul of the Rolling Stones. Um, here we have a picture of the Rolling Stones. Uh, Bob Dylan called them the those British bad boys back in 1964. They were rebels. They were encouraging us all to rebel against our cultures and particularly our environments. Uh, here we have a picture of them from 1971 from uh, their Sticky Fingers album, which was the ultimate form of rebellion that was profoundly shocking. Um Charlie Watts wasn't always a, a rebel. Here we have him uh, in a photo from 1943 as a two-year-old with his parents. By the way, people listening need to watch this because you're missing the visuals. Um, let's go back, though, to 1964. The, you remember the, the, the picture of the Stones then as rebels. Back in 64, uh, there was a child psychologist called Rudolf Dreikers uh, from the Viennese school. He came out with a new book, Children, The Challenge. Um, and uh, back in 64 as well, Bob Dylan came out, of course, with his iconic rebellious song, The Times They Are A-Changing. Come gather round people, he began. Uh, come mothers and fathers throughout the land and don't criticize what you can't understand. Your sons and your daughters are beyond your command. Your old road is rapidly aging. Please get out the new one if you can't lend your hand. For the times, they are uh, changing. Back in 64, of course, uh, the times were indeed changing. Um, let me quote something from a new book out. Uh, in 1964, Dylan released The Times They Are Changing and warned parents that your sons and daughters are beyond your command. In the same year, Rudolf Dreikers published his classic book on child-rearing, Children, The Challenge, in which he argued that children raised in democratic societies eventually learn that their parents cannot truly make them do anything. It's possible then to argue, I guess, that 1964 uh, represents a really rebellious moment, a profound shift in the nature of Western culture, particularly in terms of the relationship between parents and children. Um, my guest on the show today is the co-author of a really interesting new book. I stole that quote from, What Do You Say? How to Talk with Kids to Build Motivation, Stress Tolerance, and a Happy Home. Um, his name is Ned Johnson. Um, Ned, uh, sorry for the rather long winding introduction. Could we indeed argue that 1964 represents the year in which American parents or perhaps parents all over the world were, uh, forced to start talking to their children? 
<laughs> well, there's a solid chance that not everyone read the book, but but it, it's certainly both the that that um, album and that book. I think we're really reflecting what was in the zeitgeist that there was this transition uh, in how parents related to kids and how kids related to parents. Uh, the the last little snippet of that quote that you referenced was that. Um, when dad lost control of mom, they both lost control of the kids because, you know, women were no longer it, it, this change where women weren't necessarily subservient and, and what you know, father knows best and and uh, and, and kind of corporal command. Um, and without kids having this model of a subservient mom, subservient to dad, they didn't have a model of we necessarily go along um, with everything. Well, you know, because I told you so. Uh, and so one of the challenges that we, of course, face as parents is we have wisdom and advice that we know is going to help our kids and we, we want to share that with them. And our perspective on the right of this book is that, you know, it's up to individual parents about kind of what the messages are of values they think are important to share with their kids. But there's kind of a universal model of how to be effective in, in, in imparting that wisdom and those values to their kids. Yeah, let me quote a little bit more, as you say, when you, you, you continue um, you, you write, what research has shown to work is an authoritative parenting style in which parents set standards and enforce limits, but also treat children respectfully, seeking their opinion, encouraging them to make decisions and helping them figure out the kind of life they want. Uh, authoritative parenting is most likely to produce children who are successful, well-liked by others, empathetic, emotionally intelligent, generous, and self-reliant. And that's, of course, the point of the book, uh, uh, Ned, um, the, the, the creation of these kind of children. Um, is it all about the conversation, the C word? It seems to be very much in vogue. Um, are you yourself a good conversationalist? How do we learn to converse? Well, not everyone is going to be, um, you know, a, 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 a brilliant conversationalist. Not everyone is going to be endlessly, you know, charming or, you know, be able to do the kind of things that you do. But there are really foundational tools that all of us can use in being effective in our communication. And of course, part of this is not just what do we say, but how do we say it? And we also talk about kind of what do we not say? The first two, the first chapter of the book opens with the idea of how useful it is to express empathy and validation when we're talking to our kids. Because so often, I mean, this is true with, with, with spouses and friends and family members and everyone else, people will bring a problem to us and we have this natural tendency to want to jump in and start giving advice or, you know, telling folks, you know, if you only do this or do that, or, or even talking people out of the hard feelings that you have, you know, so if you, if you do this, you know, or if you tried this, if you talk to the teacher, maybe if you study hard next time, or it's not such a big deal, sweetheart, you know, everybody gets their heart, heart broken three years from now, you won't care. But the problem with both of those things is it tends to shut down the conversation because that advice that's given in advance of trying to understand, trying to ex express empathy and validation makes people just feel criticized. And then they kind of reflectively bat away the advice that we want to share with them. Or when we when we try to talk them out of their hard feelings, it really can give a message, to, particularly to children, that I don't want to hear these. I don't want to hear these hard feelings, or or I really can't deal with them, or you know we're supposed to be happy all the time. And of course, that's not the way life works. I mean, if anyone hasn't been a little upset or angry or frustrated or you know just discouraged beyond all get out in the last year and a half, I, I kind of question whether they're human because it's just been so much. And so this idea of using empathy and validation 
really important to make kids feel that they're understood. And part of the brain science of this is we want to help kids, but more fundamentally, we'd like to use language that's effective so that kids can fix things, can solve things, can figure out things for themselves. Because woe to the child who grows up thinking they always have to look for someone else to the solution, someone else to calm them down. Um, in so many ways, we can we can do that by saying less, not more. Um, as you say, your your first chapter here, we have a uh, again an image uh, from 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 your book, chapter one, communicating empathy, a recipe for closeness and connection. And empathy is both physical and intellectual. You suggest in the book. It's the E word, Ned. We've, we, we're always talking these days about empathy. With conversation, it's one of the, the most fashionable words. We even had Sherry Turkle, the great oh, MIT wow. um, critic of technology who has a new autobiography out entitled uh, The Empathy Diaries. What, did, what does empathy mean and why is it so important in terms of bringing up contemporary children? or at least talking to contemporary children? Well, it's a, it's a great question. Boy, what, what a wonderful conversation that must have been. I'll have to go back and listen to that. She is terrific. Um, the, the, the idea is simply this. Logic doesn't calm hard emotions. We can't talk people out of them. We can't talk them out of their hard feelings. We can't you know, give them the solution and make it all go away. Feeling listened to, feeling understood does. And part of the brain science of this is you know, the, the stress response, the amygdala, this very primitive part of our brain smack dab in the middle of our head, responds to perceived threat. The prefrontal cortex, the most recently involved part of our brain that, that is involved in problem solving, decision making, but also emotional and mental flexibility, putting things into context. So when we get upset, that prefrontal cortex just goes offline. When we as parents can, can co-regulate with kids, can use our words, can use our energy to help them feel listened to and understood, and it calms those hard emotions, it brings the rational put problem-solving part of the brain back online. And but so Ned, you're talking as if we're all computers. You know, you're a parent yourself. I'm a parent. We don't think like this when we're irritated with our children and our children are irritated with us. Um, we don't think in terms of prefrontal cortexes or, or, or other brain science. Um, what would you say to an everyday parent who has to deal with annoying children or children who have to deal with really annoying parents? Well, you know, uh, I, I if they're to learn empathy, because <laughs> yeah. empathy itself, and I, I think Sherry Turkle suggests this, uh, her, by her autobiography uh, is she was surrounded by incredibly annoying parents and family members, and yet she turned out to be empathetic, and she acknowledges that she herself is annoying. So um, <laughs> we have well, to recognize of, the the profound imperfectibility of human nature, don't we, in all this? Well, no, that's, that's right. That's true. And part of it could be nothing more. The, with empathy, you're not necessarily proving. You're just recognizing that the person has a reason to feel the way that they do. I had a big business thing a couple months ago, uh, the details of which are relevant. But, and I called up some, one of my colleagues, and she's like, that sucks. And that's all that I really wanted to hear because, yeah, this does suck, right? I didn't want to say, here, you know, you, you won't miss that guy anyway. Three years from now, it won't matter. You know, there are many other people. I, I don't want to hear any of that. 
you know, I just want to hear that. That sucks, right? So when your kid comes home and is and is you know kicking the you know books you know books across the floor, grousing about the teacher, we don't talk them out and just say, "Boy, you look like you're in a you look like you're in a lousy mood. You look like you look like you have had a day." And it can be nothing more than that. We're just acknowledging, recognizing that. Yeah, and you say, "Yeah, my day has sucked." Like, boy, it sure looks that way. That's not that complicated. I mean, if you kind of think like, "What's a good bartender do when you walk into a pub?" Buddy, you look like you could use a drink. So we we need to learn to be. That's, I like that, uh, Ned. We need to all, as parents, we need to learn to be bartenders or perhaps customers in a bar. People wandering in, needing a drink. Uh, the book, the subtitle of the book is "How to Talk with Kids to Build Motivation, Stress Tolerance, and a Happy Home." Why the stressing of of, of tolerance, Bill? Are you uh, not Bill? Sorry, and Ned. Are you? Um, are you yourselves uh, in the business of, of, of raising ideologically tolerant children? Why should we care about that? Well, we, we very purposely chose the, the phrase stress tolerance as opposed to resilience. And they're effectively the same thing. And I'll explain that in just a moment. But the word resilience has been part of maybe 14,000 parenting books in the last couple of years. And I feel a little bit like the meaning of it has been, you know, sort of been, it's been lost. And, and resilience technically, even with, with, with materials, is simply the ability to return to a previous situation. So, so Andrew, I can get upset, I can get frustrated, I cry, whatever, whatever, whatever. Um, a really good marker of mental health is how quickly do I get over it? You know, I lose the game. I'm pissed. I get that. But am I, am I, am I dragging myself around for the next you know, hour, for the next day, for the next week? We need to have the ability to bounce back from hard things. Otherwise, you can't go out and live lives that are full of challenge and adventure because you just one bad thing and you're wiped out. That's not going to work. Stress tolerance, you know, s simply is that kids are going to experience things that are that are stressful. You know, going to school, new situations, friends. It's what we experience when we're testing ourselves, when we're stretching ourselves, when we play a, a, a better team, and it's stressful. But that's actually how we grow. We need for kids to have the ability to be able to tolerate stressful situations. Not that they're easy, not that they're happy, but that's how they get stronger and stronger and more able to take on things going, going down the, further down the line. As parents, we have such a tendency to understandably to want to protect our kids, but when we protect them from anything that could possibly get them upset or bend them, bend them out of shape, it's a huge disservice because they're like declawed cats. They're not ready to go out in the real world where, you know, last time I checked, there are some things that are pretty stressful. Our, um, and I'm curious, again, with the S word, stress or stressful, yeah. um, I have one teenager in particular who talks often about stressfulness, and I, and I know that it's, it's part of the zeitgeist too. Uh, what do researchers and uh, literate people, and shall we call them the, 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 the parent industrial complex like yourself, <laughs> What do they say about why why childhood now seems to be so much more stressful? Um, is, is it a cultural thing? Is it a physiological thing? Can we blame Facebook? I, well, you know, one way to think about, for, for the way that I think about stress is that if the total inflows of stress 
exceed the total outflows, the ways that we cast off stress, we're going to have a problem, right? Life has always been stressful. It's simply that I think there's the, the, the pace of life is constantly increasing with technology, which is stressful by itself. Certainly social media, Gene Twenge, who's one of the great researchers on this, looked at, has studied changes um, in populations really since the 1930s. And it was in 2012 when there've been, you know, changes in, in populations are very, very, very gradual. And then 2012, it went almost straight up. And that was the year when more than half the American population had a smartphone. And there's a real sense that that, that was just one too many things, kind of the, the straw that broke the camel's back. But it's also the case that we live in a world that is more materialistic than ever, that is more, much more concerned about our, our looks than our, than our values, this perceived scarcity that only, you have to go to this or that college. Um, you know, the, the, certainly the political discord you talked about, you know, ide ideology there where we don't feel like we're all in this together. I feel like those people and these feel like th those people. And just the more cumulative stress that we're under, particularly for young kids, who have developing brains, it's just, it's just not where we want to be. Um, you know, so we're not particularly interested in sort of saying that, you know, I'm going to blame this person or that blame that person, because if we can't do much about it, that's not going to help us. Part of the reason we wrote this book is that if there's a silver bullet against the effects of, of stress-related disorders on developing brains, it's just a close connection with, with a parent or a caregiver. So I'm not, I'm, we don't really want to point a finger at parents and say, you should have done this, but rather, here's how you can help. Because again, when we talk about stress, there's actually three types of stress. There's, there's good stress, right? You're excited before a soccer game, before you ask someone out on a date, and we experience that as excitement. There's tolerable stress, which is mostly what this book is about, things that are hard. But by getting through hard things, you develop the ability to get through other hard things. I mean, I could go on about my very ch challenging childhood, which has really sown in me the seeds to, to be able to handle the hard things that I do as part of my job. Then, of course, there's chronic or toxic stress that, that really overwhelms kids. And we want what to- about, uh, uh, the, the, uh, you, you, your day job, uh, Ned, <laughs> is uh, you're a- uh... You teach kids how to take the SAT. You run a, a, a prep business. You're the right. author of Conquering the SAT. How much do you think that the, the current obsession, particularly in upper middle class, liberal, aristocratic America with getting into the best colleges, how much uh, can we blame that on the stressfulness of, of, of children, of the kind of people who you write about and who will read your book? Well, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation did a study in 2017 on the causes of stress in adolescence. And the first three were poverty, trauma, and racism. Number four was intense pressure to excel. So I got that. And then number five was social media. So yeah, I worry a lot about the pressure to excel. And you know, it's interesting for me, I'm a guy who helps kids prepare for and do well on these, on these college entrance exams. And part of what I think makes me a little better at this than maybe some other people are, is I really try to de-emphasize the importance. I really try to lower the stress that people feel about this in part because most mental health is changing thinking from I have to to I want to. And if you want to go to Princeton, you look great in orange for four years, knock yourself out. But the idea that you have to, to have a successful life. Do they wear orange at Princeton? Is that? That's my understanding. <laughs> All the time or just uh, publicly? <laughs> Probably more the latter. But yeah, we don't want kids, you know, 
I help people get into college, but the, I reject the idea that high school is a four-year addition for college, as opposed to four years of young people developing themselves, figuring out what matters to them, you know, developing their inner drive, their ability to, hard, to handle hard things, because no matter where they go to college, it's not like life is done once you get into, you know, Stanford or Yale or, or wherever you go. Um, so yeah, I, I, the, the pressure that a lot of parents feel because they're just so worried about their kids. If they, if they don't go to an A plus college, they can't have an A plus life. And the, and the statistics, they just don't support that. Ned, I, I'm curious as the, and sorry, in, in terms of your book, um, what do you say, which is focusing on conversation? You're saying that parents should be talking to their children and children should be talking to their parents. I don't think anyone's going to argue with that, but I'm wondering whether you're, you're putting the horse before the cart. Let's go back to 1964, that wonderful image of the Rolling Stones as rebels, and then back to little um, Charlie Watts. Mm -hmm. The enormous difference between the culture of 1943 and 1964 are self-evident in, in the photos. There really was a cultural rebellion, we know, in the 1960s. Um, the reverse is is true of that, I, I think. Today, uh, about 10 years, or almost 10 years ago, I had the great American writer Kurt Anderson on the on my show when it was a, a TechCrunch show. He wrote a really interesting piece called You Say You Want a Devolution, which is about how nothing really has changed over the last 25 years in terms of dress, in terms of music, in terms of fashion and culture. The only thing that's changed, uh, Anderson said back in 2012, it's even more true today, is technology. Uh, uh, my point, again, a rather long-winded one, I apologize, is that parents and children are indeed talking. They're wearing the same clothes. They're listening to the same music. They have the same preoccupations. It's so, uh, it always annoys me, but more and more children describe their parents as their best friends, and uh, parents describe their children as their best friends. My point is that the culture has changed so that the that, that, that children and the great division in society is not between parents and children anymore. Mm. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it does. I mean, we, we talk about that in our, our book a little bit. I mean, from my perspective, if, if, a, if a parent is a kid's best friend, something's not going right. Oh, I'm pleased you say that. Say that again, Ned. If, if, if For a, all if those a, children out there who <laughs> think their parents are their best friend. It's, Go it, on, say it again. If a parent is a kid's best friend, something's not going right, right? I mean, you know, because my job is to raise, I have a 17 and a 19 year old. My job and my wife's job is to raise them to be independent. So if I got hit by a truck on the way home and that's the end of dad, well, I hope they're a little sad, but hopefully they pick themselves up, dust themselves off and, and get on with life because they're supposed to grow up. They're supposed to go and, you know, and get jobs and leave and, and, and find their own best friends and their own spouses or partners and, and, and go off and build their lives. I mean, fr from my perspective, I've been thinking the last couple of years, maybe four or five years about how I'm going to have a relationship with my kids as adults. They're being adults longer than I will with them as kids. I want to have a respectful, you know, friendly relationship. I love my kids enormously. 
but I don't want to be their best friend, right? Because th there are things that they should share with me, but there are things that they should share with their with with people who are more their own age. So, so we want to be respectful with our kids. We sure want our kids to be respectful with us. But for parents who are who are trying to be their kids' best friend, particularly if they're trying to bring themselves down to their level, you can interpret that however you want. I think it's a terrible disservice, in part because we also would do well to make adulthood look cool, look great. Like, I mean, my life is way more fun than when I was a teenager. And if we if we make adulthood, Why is that? I'm happier. I'm doing things that are more meaningful to me. I like the work that I do. I'm married. That's kind of a cool thing. Um, I'm not living with my parents anymore. <laughs> no offense, mom and dad. Um, you are, there, are your parents still alive, Ned? Um, it, my father passed away. Uh, I, I referenced this before. My father was a problem drinker and left this earth earlier than he should have. Uh, and my mother, um, I'm actually estranged from her. It's been a, it's a, it's a complicated tale and time for, for, for another show. Uh, but she is still alive and, and doing and doing well. So you're not perfect, Ned, which is good to hear. Sometimes in these kind of books on the parent-child com uh, industrial complex, there's a certain sort of self-celebration. Mm -hmm. uh, your um, your inscription at the beginning of the book is to you say to Vanessa, who said yes to me all those years ago, starting this wonderful life we built together. To Matthew and Katie, I assume they're your kids. Mm -hmm. I love you no matter what. You make my life rich in all the ways that matter. Um, have you been a perfect parent, Ned? <laughs> um, I don't believe there are perfect parents. And and thank goodness, because if 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 parents need if kids needed perfect parents, right, we as a species would be screwed. Right. And so our feeling is parents don't need to be kids don't need perfect parents and parents don't need to beat themselves up for falling short of that. What we can do, though, is recognize are there places where things could go better? I mean, part of it is I want to have a close relationship with my kids just because I like them. Right. And there's nothing more painful than as a parent than having terrific advice that you really want to share with your kid and, and to have them bat it away like you don't understand or that's just stupid. And now you're super frustrated because you, you feel you, everyone's upset and the great advice you wanted to share, you know, has disappeared. So I, you know, perfect parent, no, 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 no. Um, but what I am pretty good at is when I make mistakes, which I do, I'm pretty good at apologizing and going back later and saying, you know, I really... I was pretty upset then. I handled that not so well. I, I want you to know whatever I want you to know, but but I am sorry that I didn't handle that particularly well. In part because that's a pretty useful skill to carry into adult life. I mean, who doesn't make mistakes from time to time? Well, that's uh, probably that's uh, parenting one hundred and one. Acknowledging you're making mistakes. Finally, Ned. What about the socioeconomics of all this? Um, as I said, uh, uh, you, you, sorry, your new book. Um, what do you say how to talk with kids to build motivation, stress tolerance, and a happy home is just out today. It's actually um, the follow-up to your best-selling, The, the Self-Driven Child, um, which was, again, a, a critical and commercial success. Um, we've had a number of these kind of books on the show. Mm -hmm. We had Emily Oster. I'm sure you're familiar with her mm -hmm. new book and her work, The Family Firm, A Data-Driven Guide to Better Decision-Making in the Early School Years, which suggests that we sort of turn the family into a firm. Another author we had on the show uh, was Melinda Wenamoya, How to Raise Kids Who Aren't Assholes, um, very much in the vein, I think, of your book. 
But all these books, um, all these books, Ned, whether it's yours, whether it's Wenner's, whether it's uh, Oster's, they're all written. They're all written and indeed read by the same socioeconomic class. And what it seems to me is that families are staying together in the upper middle class. They're succeeding more and more. Uh, they're using services like yours, conquering the SAT to get into the top universities. Meanwhile, the rest of America is increasingly in crisis. We have the disappearance of the middle class. Uh, we've had many, many shows on that. Um, how do we get books like yours into the hands of people who really need to read them? Hmm. You know, it's a, Andrew, it's a great question. I'm not... I'm at, I'm honestly a little bit at a loss about that. What I what I will say is, you know, Bill and I, for instance, have come to uh, Palo Alto uh, or Men Menlo Atherton several times. A great group. Out That's there. a lower middle class neighborhood, Ned. A place yep, of I, great um, injustice. Yeah, and I'll, poor I'll, people, right? And uh, and uh, and because what of course happens there is is there are impossibly wealthy school districts, you know, adjacent to ones that are wildly under-resourced. Um, and so one, one woman named Charlene Margot, who heads a parenting education group out there, whenever she brings us out, we get paid to do the high ticket items for, you know, Palo and, you know, Pali High School and, and, and Gunn, and then go, you know, across the valley and, and go to schools where they're really under-resourced. Um, you know, for anyone who's listening, who works with a group that's a, you know, college access program or any kind of group with, with folks who have, um, how would you say, have more um, ability than advantage? Um, we would love to talk with, with anyone that we can help. I mean, because your, your point is a really good one. Um, you know, I, for one, am, am, am frankly a fan of progressive taxation. Uh, I grew up, I was a, a Pell Grant kid, which means I grew up with very little money. And at this point, I have more money than I really need. And I think that, I think that the world is a better place when we don't have such an incredible divide between the most, most well-to-do and everybody else, because that level of scarcity, or at least perceived scarcity, all it does is inject more stress into systems, and it leads to bad parenting, it leads to, to bad mental health outcomes for people both at the high end and at the low end, because being stressed all the time, particularly for kids with the brains that are developing, it's, it's not good for anybody. Well, Ned, you've... You've been an excellent interview. I've tried to fluster you and you're unflusterable. Can I be your child in the next life? I will tell you that Bill and I both practice transcendental meditation. And uh, I have a son, 19-year-old, I won't go too deep into it, was diagnosed seven weeks ago with a, with a brain tumor, which is not the plan we had for the summer. Uh, oh, my well -met God. Young man. So he has the, chosen the right kind that's most amenable uh, to, to medical treatment. And we're really grateful for the folks that are helping us. But both my wife and I have had multiple people saying, how do you remain so calm during this? And, um, you know, for us, practicing transplantation is one of the tools, but also part of the reason we wrote this book is life is hard, life is stressful, and we sure want home to be a safe base. So when kids, you know, kind of feel like they drag themselves in the door, you know, bruised and bloodied, that they have someone there who rather than piling on or trying to solve things can say, boy, Buddy, it looks like you've had a day. Can I get you a drink? In this case, a juice box, of course. But yeah, well, at, the, at that a metaphorical bar. Well, Ned uh, Ned uh, Johnson, the co-author of What Do You Say? Uh, How to Talk with Kids to Build Motivation, Stress Tolerance, and a Happy Home. Very interesting book. I've been reading it all morning, Ned. Congratulations on the book. I know you are 
at home in the moment uh, on the East Coast, these mm-hmm. strange times where we're still not quite sure whether we can go out or not? What else should people be reading? Well, there, there, there are two books. There's a um, Dr. Diana Hill uh, had us on her podcast, and this is a, basically a journal, the ACT Daily Journal, and it's basically about values and really trying to take care and, and pay attention to what matters so that you're, we're using our time in ways that are, you know, meaningful to us and meaningful to other people. The other book that I'm a great fan of that I seem to have misplaced, maybe in my, maybe in my office, um, is a book called The Addiction Inoculation mm-hmm. by Jessica Leahy, who, who's probably most well known for writing The Gift of Failure. Um, just a, it's a tremendously valuable book because we certainly know during these last 14 months with, with COVID or however months it's been with the increase of stress, there's also real concerns about substance use disorder. Um, and it's a terrific parenting book about how parents can help their kids navigate these young teenage and teenage years and come out the other side. Um, if, and if they're going to be using substances, at least doing that in a way that's healthy and balanced. So like that book as well. Well, Ned Johnson, real honor. Keep well, keep parenting, keep making sense of the world, keep improving uh, the quality of lives uh, of children, keep getting them into good colleges, uh, and we'll have you back on the show in the not-too-distant future. Thank you again. Thank you. It was a pleasure.